You're listening to a podcast from Riverview Church in Bowness, recorded during one of our Sunday gatherings. For more information about Riverview Church, for service times or contact details, go to riverviewchurch.uk or find us on Facebook at Riverview Bowness. Good morning, everybody. Nice to be in a nice, fresh atmosphere this morning. Yes, um, sorry. But I'm just reminded that there are congregations in the likes of Russia and Ukraine who are worshipping in zeros and underneath zeros. So maybe we're not too bad in bonus. I want to begin this morning by asking a question. Daddy what? Who's he? Not talking about Eddie, (laughs) nor Andrew. Is there anybody here knows who I'm talking about when I say, oh yes, there's hands going up. Daddy what? Righty-ho. Daddy what was a mathematics teacher at the old Bowness Academy. I often wonder about him, this tall, over six-foot man breezing into the classroom with a big teacher's cloak flapping behind him, taking the register and then looking at the class, 28 boys, and saying to himself, why did I ever get involved in teaching? 26 of them are numpties, and there's only two of them are going to make anything at all out of mathematics. But he soldiered on, he soldiered on. The reason I'm bringing him to mind this morning is, one day he came in, took the register, looked up, and thought, oh no, they'll never, they'll never. He said, today, Pythagoras theorem. Hands again, hands again. Who remembers Pythagoras? Oh, there we are, a lot more hands there, yeah. Well, he stood there and he says, the square on the hypotenuse of a right angle triangle is equal to the sum of the squares on the two adjacent sides. (laughs) That was it, that was it. And he repeated it and repeated it. Something of it must have got in because here I am. (laughs) Sixty odd years later and I still remember it. And I thought, I'll never use that again. Fourteen-year-old Pythagoras. No, get rid of him. You'll never. But jump forward five years when two apprentices, Derek Meldrum and Len Bennett, are working up at, well, you now know it as Ineos. Before that, it was BP. Before that, it was BP Chemicals. And before that, it was British Hydrocarbon Chemicals. So here's Derek and me in the instrument shop. And this tradesman turns to us and says, boys, my brother's going to build a house in Kilsyth. And he needs foundations dug. Do you fancy coming through? on Saturday and helped to dig some of the foundations. And I'm sure 
it'll give you something for doing it. Well, it wasn't so much the thought of being on a hillside in Kilsyth. It was that made us say yes. So we turned up, and here was John McSevney and his brother, I think David, uh, standing there waiting on us coming with a whole bunch of steaks, great big ham, uh, mallet and what have you. And David hammers one steak in and looks away along where the back of the house is going to be and puts another steak in, puts a bit of string across, and then he says, we've got to get the corners right. We've got to get them at right angles. He says, so come on, Pythagoras. What's Pythagoras got to do in building a house in Kilsyth? He says, well, let's do Pythagoras. Three, four, five. I said, three, four, five. Three, four, five. Well, he started to lay out one side three, one side four, and a diagonal five. And when he did this, he took his time about it to make sure that one side was exactly four yards and this side was exactly three yards and then he measured across here. And if this was exactly five yards long, it was a right angle triangle. Daddy Watt and Kosaith, I never thought they would ever join together. Never thought they'd ever join together. Daddy was the theoretical man, and David McSevney was the practical one. And over a distance of about five years, they came together, and they're locked in here. They're locked in here. The other thing I want to bring this morning is Romans chapter 12. Not so much a theoretical chapter, but a practical chapter. And it's a practical chapter because the Apostle Paul is going to join chapters 8 and then he'll skip 9, 10, and 11 where he's going to talk about God and the Gentiles and the Jews and then he jumps to chapter 12. So it's a jump from chapter 8 to chapter 12 we're looking at this morning. And they're joined by one word that Ian Burns loves to talk about. What's that word, Ian? Therefore. therefore. Why is it? Well, you see that, you must ask yourself the question, what is it therefore? What's it? <laughs> All right, at the beginning of chapter 12, Paul says, therefore. And what he's saying therefore is, because he's saying, remember what I said in chapter 8, and think about it, and because of all the great things in chapter 8, Therefore, you should have a response to it all. You should have a response to it all. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Come on. What about a hallelujah? If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in you, he will also quicken your mortal bodies. Yes. For I consider, here's a hard one, 
For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Yeah, you got it, you got it. And then he goes on to mention great words. He talks about election and predestination, about God, what he does for us in Jesus Christ. And then there's a great bit right at the end where he says, things are going to get hard. They're going to get really hard. But these things can't separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Chapter 8's a great chapter. And Paul's talked about it. Now he jumps to chapter 12 and he says, because of all that, therefore, how about something from you? It's a practical chapter. It's all about what we should be. He's writing to Rome. He's never been there. He's met some folks who'd been in Rome and traveled back and forth across the, the Mediterranean area, but he'd never been in Rome itself. He always wanted to be, but his ministry was confined to what we know as Turkey and Greece, all that area with all the cities and towns around about there. He'd never been at Rome. He wanted to go to Rome, but he says, I've been prevented time and time again. But now he says, I've got a collection that I've got to take to Jerusalem. When I'm finished taking the collection to Jerusalem, I want to go to Spain. And of course, to go to Spain, he's got to travel right across. And Rome's probably on the route. So he says, when I take that collection and leave Jerusalem and heading for Spain, I'm going to stop in Rome. And I'm going to stop in Rome because I don't want to build on another man's foundation. I don't want to step on anyone's toes because the folks who are in Rome already, the leadership in the two or three churches that there must have been in Rome, they've been good leaders. They've been established. I don't want to come in and say, I'm the big man. Now I'm going to tell you some great truths. He says, but what I would like to do is to give a spiritual gift to you in the church in Rome. And then perhaps you could help me by sending me on my way to Spain. So two things about that. He'd never seen the church. Doesn't want to stand on anybody's toes, but he does want to visit them. And so he writes this letter that we know as, as Romans. Therefore, he says, because of all these things that God has done for us that we've said in chapter 8, great, great truths, great reformation, rediscovered truths. He says, therefore, because of all of that, here's what I'm going to ask you now. Let's be practical. Let's get down to the nitty-gritty of Christian living. You're in a horrible environment there in Rome. You Christians, Jews and Gentiles in the churches there together in Rome, you're in a horrible environment. How are you going to live before these people that you meet day by day? Therefore, he says, present yourselves as a living sacrifice to God. Present yourselves as a living sacrifice to God. That's an oxymoron. That's an oxymoron. It's one of these things where two things are said and they don't really match up. They don't cling together. It's an oxymoron. 
There never was a living sacrifice. Every sacrifice that ever been offered was a dead thing. He could have said to the Jews, when you take your visit up to Jerusalem and you go up to the temple there and you either bring your animal with you or you stop in the courts of the temple and you buy an animal, something, a dove, a goat, a sheep, a bull, whatever you buy, you go in. And with this animal, you stand looking for a priest who's got no one in front of him. And you walk up to him and you say, here's my sacrifice animal. And the priest takes that from you, dispatches it, takes some of the blood, throws it on the altar, and then sends the animal off to be burnt. It's dead. The sacrifice is dead. And you turn and walk away. And he could have said to the Greeks and the Romans, when you go up to your temples and go to visit your gods and do your acts of sacrifice with animals, hoping that the gods up there, they'll look down on you very kindly and help you through your life. The animal's dead and you turn and walk away as well. But Paul says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. It's an oxymoron. There never was a living sacrifice. An old hymn used to say, lay your life on the altar for God. And this is what Paul was asking the saints in Rome to do. So how do you respond to this? Make your life a living sacrifice there in Rome that the folks who you're dealing with, they'll see you and they'll say, there's something different about that man. There's something different about that woman. Something different. So how are you going to reply to this? You're going to shrug your shoulders and say, oh, you're getting a bit deep now, Paul. You're getting a bit deep. I've done the minimum. I do the minimum. I go to church. I put my offering in. I sing the hymns. I wait for the closing announcements and prayer. Then I go home. I've done the minimum. Paul says, and the word he uses is translated two ways in your Bibles. Paul says, if I'm asking you to be a living sacrifice, he says, that's a reasonable, so the word he uses, that's a reasonable thing I'm asking you to do. When you consider all that God has done for you, and I've said it in chapter 8, now I'm asking you in chapter 12 to do something with your life. It's a perfectly reasonable thing for me to say, men and women, Christians in Rome, it's a reasonable thing. It's not unreasonable that I'm asking you. And that word is translated in another way where it says, it's a spirit, an act of spiritual worship. It's a spiritual thing you're doing when you're saying, Lord, here I am. Take me. Take me. Paul's saying, don't be conformed to the Rome that's round about you. Don't follow your old way of living. Change. Change. Do something permanent. I put it like this. Monday morning, 
Oh, hallelujah, I don't have Monday mornings anymore. <laughs> but those of you that do have Monday mornings, and you wake it up, and you go and you get washed, get your clothes on, go down the stairs or whatever, get the coffee going, toast, marmalade, you do that, you clear up, put it away in the kitchen, you get the coat on, you get the handbag or the satchel on, and you come to the front door and you turn the key to open it, you put your hand on the handle. Should you stop and say, Lord, my life's a living sacrifice. I'm going to go out there, Lord, to meet folks that I've met week in and week out. They know me. Lord, as a living sacrifice, help me this day and throughout the week that's to come to be the man or the woman you want me to be. To stop at the front door and say, Lord, Romans chapter 12 begins to say, I have to present my life as a living sacrifice. Well, Lord, as I go out into the world again, help me to be that living sacrifice that folks, when they look at me, they'll know something different about me. So he's done that. Then he, he comes to a bit about those who are in church leadership, and he lays out five or things, five or so things to them, and he tells them how they should order their lives as far as church goes. He says, if you've got a gift of prophecy, do it according to the faith that you have. If your faith small, say the word of prophecy that comes. If your faith large, give it out. Something that will help the people of God who are sitting in church, who are maybe going through a rough time, and God himself sees it and says to the person with the gift of prophecy, I want you to now speak out and give a word that somehow or other helps somebody in the congregation. How many times of those of us who have been long in the tooth have heard people say, that word was for me. That word was for me. And although it was for only one person in the congregation, that little word of prophecy that came helped that person. And Paul's saying, if you've got the gift of prophecy, exercise it by faith. If you've got ministry, serve the church well. Do it to the best of your ability in ministry. If you've got a teaching ministry, remember, they didn't have the New Testament to look at and get thoughts like this out of and bring to the court. They didn't have the words of the New Testament. All they had was the apostles' doctrine. The words that the apostles gave out to different churches as they went round about, and different people, particular individuals, would remember what the apostles said, how they talked about Jesus and the stories about it all, and particular people would remember these things. And on thinking about these things, the Holy Spirit would do something within them and help them to bring a greater message to the church. Encouraging. Be an encourager, says Paul. I tell you what, we need encouragement. We need encouragement. Generosity. Always give a helping hand, not necessarily linked to, to money, but give a helping hand. If you're a leader in church, give a helping hand. Help people. Say hello seem interested in them. 
you know, though sometimes you're low. <laughs> Generosity. Barnabas, in the early bits of that book of chapter Acts, he goes and sells a piece of land. Doesn't he put it in his pocket? He gives it into the church and says, there you are, help those who are in need. And Paul says, if you're a leader in the church and you're leading in church services, then don't let your leadership become a dictatorship. Lead well so that the people can say, I love that person. I love that person for the way that they lead us. Compassionate, Paul says, have a good heart. Have a good heart. So he's spoken to leaders. And now he comes to the general folks, all of us in the congregation. This is the outward appearance of the church. You remember that phrase where they say about the Christians, see how they love one another. See how they love one another. That's the outside world recognizing. Paul gives. I'm going to just spend a couple of minutes on each one of these. Paul gives 22 practical points. <laughs> 22 practical points. As you work your way down in verses, oh, we're at 9 to 21. 22. If I give you two minutes on 44 minutes, and if, if somehow, oh, the Holy Spirit brings something to my mind, and I take a divergent path, the 22 minutes times 244 goes to 144. Imagine 22 practicalities, 22 practicalities. No, I'll not read them all. <laughs> I won't read them all. I'll just take only three. Let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. Love one another. Love one another. The word that he talks about when he says genuine, it's the word that almost would translate over from the original to English. Let love be unhypocritical. Don't let your love be two-faced. Let your love be real. Let your love be genuine. When you see folks and you shake a hand, get that smile on your face. Let them know that there's something in you who loves them. I mean, we don't go about saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. I still do, Margaret, now, now and again. Now, now and again, now and again. But Paul says, let your love be genuine. I remember... Mr. Turner at Bonus Academy. I lived in fear of him. 
He had a belt that was brand new. Had hardly touched the hands of boys or girls. And he kept it over his shoulder, under his brown coat. And he called it Caesar. This big, heavy leather belt. He was talking to us about genuine. And he says, you know what fool's gold is? And I think I got the word right when he said pinchbeck. Fool's gold. And you got to know the difference between genuine gold and pinchbeck gold. It was just an imitation. And Paul's saying here, let your love be genuine. Let it be solid gold. Don't let it be a pinchbeck, false kind of love. Be constant in prayer. Whoa. Almost all the commentators I have read say that time and time again, they struggle in prayer. And these are people that we would look up to. People that we would look up to to tell us how to live our lives. The terrible thing about this word in the original, it's about the longest word that Paul ever uses. It's got so many letters in it. You know, the Greeks have a word for it. Well, it's got so many letters in it. It's almost as saying, because this is an enormous letter about prayer, I really want you to do something about your praying. Persevere in prayer. Here I am, Lord, once again, side of my bed, I've come to you in prayer. And Lord, I want to thank you for all the things that you have done for me. Lord, this is... I tell you, it happens. I don't know many, countless times it happens. And Paul's saying, prayer for some people is a very easy thing. But he says, for the majority of us, no, no, Paul didn't say that. I'm saying it. For the majority of us, it's a hard thing at times to pray and to pray into situations and to pray about people, to pray about your town, to pray about the community you live in, to pray about world situations that's happening just now in Ukraine. It's not easy. That's why Paul says about it, says, prayer, prayer, be constant in prayer. And the last one I'm going to use, it says, never be wise in your own sight. Never be wise in your own sight. Never be the, I'm right. Never be the, I know best. Never be the, it's my way. <laughs> Never be wise in your own sight. Take a good hard look at yourself. Measure yourself up against some of the greats. Measure yourself up against Paul. And be content to say, I don't know it all. I've not got the answer for everything. I'm just a humble Christian getting on with life. Maybe I'm in some kind of leadership role. I don't always know best. That's why the church and Paul always says that leadership's never single, 
It's a group of people being together so that one person can't be the be-all and end-all, the voice of everything, the one who's always right. That's why church leadership is a corporate leadership. They bat off one another and come to agreement about things. So, how do, how do we finish just now? Well, self-reflection is a good thing, not a morbid introspection. Oh, woe is me, woe is me. Self-reflection. Use the measuring rod of Scripture to see how you measure up. Use chapter 12 to look at these things and say, well, how do I measure up to this chapter 12, Paul, the practical chapter? How about, they used to stone people for saying things that they didn't like. Don't stone me this morning. How about, here we are in church, and we finish, and we go for a cup of tea or coffee and a biscuit, and off we go home, and out comes the Sunday dinner, and we scoff it all, and we clear the table, and we go, and we sit down in the big chair, and we look to the side of us, and there it is the TV remote control. Oh, the TV remote control. And Scotland's playing the day, remember? <laughs> the TV remote control. You're not going to control me the day. You're going to be remote because I'm going to go sit here and I'm going to open my Bible, maybe do it once a month, and I'm going to read Paul's words in chapter 12, and I'm going to say, how do I measure up here? How do I measure up here? Paul gives, well, a lot more than 22 practical pointers. Can it be? Can I be a living sacrifice? Lay my life on the altar for God. Amen.